Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career.academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in the healthcare industry, especially on the policymaking and influencing side of things, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a leader in the healthcare space with more than 20 years of experience working with healthcare purchasers, providers, policymakers, and payers to improve healthcare quality and cost. But before I introduce you to Elizabeth Mitchell, the president and CEO of the Pacific Business Group on Health, a nonprofit focused on improving health outcomes, experience, and affordability for consumers and purchasers across the U.S., I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Mondays, and it has got all kinds of unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And make sure to check out my weekly live streaming show on LinkedIn, where I share coronavirus relevant career advice, interview guests live, take your questions and feature your comments. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn. That way you'll get an alert when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Elizabeth Mitchell, president and CEO of the Pacific Business Group on Health, also known as PBGH. It's a nonprofit organization focused on improving health outcomes, experience and affordability for consumers and purchasers across the U.S. PBGH represents 40 of the largest public and private purchasers of healthcare services in the U.S., including Boeing, Microsoft, CalPERS, Comcast, Intel, and Walmart, all of whom collectively spend $100 billion on healthcare every year. 
for their employees and their families. Prior to joining PBGH, Elizabeth served briefly as the Senior Vice President for Healthcare and Community Health Transformation at Blue Shield of California, during which time she designed Blue Shield's strategy for transforming practice, payment, and community health. And before that, Elizabeth spent five years as the President and CEO of the Network for Regional Healthcare Improvement, NRHI. It's a national membership association of regional quality improvement and measurement organizations. She also served as the CEO of Maine's Business Coalition on Health, and she worked within an integrated delivery system in Maine called Maine Health. Much earlier in her career, when she was just 24 years old, Elizabeth actually ran for elected office. She was a single mom who was working but just barely scraping by, and she won election to the Maine State Legislature and served as a state representative. If you want to learn how to break into the healthcare industry writ large, please check out show notes for this episode to see if Elizabeth's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Elizabeth, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your black coffee and ready to go? I sure am. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, well, I am excited to talk to you because I cannot wait to get into not just what you're doing now in your current job and how you built your career, but I just think your story is so fascinating and so representative of the way that careers unfold. And I want our listeners to know that when you were their age, when you were in college, you had no clue, just as I had no clue where I would end up, that you would end up in the healthcare industry and that you would actually spend the entirety of your professional career to date working for different organizations and in different capacities in the healthcare space. Yeah, it literally never occurred to me. <laughs> I had never even thought about going into healthcare. I was a religion and philosophy major. I was interested in sociology and political science and history. And and, and the cool thing was, is not only did they, those things all come together in a religion degree, but they actually are all all part of healthcare. You've got to understand economics and incentives, politics and political science, you know, social justice, social welfare. There's so much to healthcare that I've just found it endlessly fascinating, but I got there entirely by accident. So for those of us like me who know very little about healthcare and don't really understand what's going on in this industry, except that our deductibles keep getting higher and our reimbursement rates are getting lower. Could you please give us sort of a healthcare 101 around who are the main actors and players in the healthcare space? Sure. And it's such a good question because it is a a massive and opaque industry. And it is really hard to understand why it is as frankly, messed up as it is. And everyone sees sort of different sides of the elephant, like they see their deductible or, you know, they can't get an appointment with a physician or, you know, they actually have a good experience with the surgery. But putting the systemic view in place is really important to understand why we are where we are and what it will take to change. So 
obviously we have clinical teams. We have doctors, nurses, social workers. They are critically important. And honestly, we we need more of them and we need to support them more effectively. They are on the front lines of taking care of people every day. Unfortunately, in the U.S. healthcare system, they are also part of very large businesses, whether it's a hospital or a health system that tend to have business practices that aren't just about patient care. And this is going to be wonky, so bear with me. But in the U.S., we are we have what's called a fee for service system. So the way we pay for healthcare in the United States is you only get paid if you do something to someone. So if you have an office visit or if you have a MRI or some other test or if you have a surgery, that is the only time doctors get paid. So when you think about it, if everybody stays healthy, no one gets paid. That does not sit well with a multi-trillion dollar industry. (laughs) So there are all of these incentives to do more to people rather than keep them healthy, rather than keep them, you know, out of the hospital and just living healthy lives. All of the incentives are to basically do more procedures and tests and have those be really expensive because that's what's supporting the industry, the health insurance companies, the hospital systems. So we've got this complex set of business relationships that really overlay and get in the way of really just helping people stay healthy. So in my view, we've got to put more money into primary care and community health where people are actually able to stay healthy. And again, bear with me for the wonkishness, but there's this whole new, you know, movement in U.S. healthcare to recognize what they're calling the quote unquote social determinants of health. What that really means is, do you have a house? Do you have a well-paying job? Can you afford the food you need? What are the things in your day-to-day life that actually keep you healthy? That's what we need to be investing in. And, you know, frankly, we need to downsize the part of the industry that is just making massive profits off unnecessary procedures. So that's may not be a 101, but we want to support clinicians. We want to support people staying healthy in their communities. And right now we have a massive system that works against that. You said thank you, by the way. In our Espresso Shots interview, which we just finished recording you mentioned that we had lost the plot. And at another point, you said we're off script. So I want to ask you, if this was a play or a work of fiction, Elizabeth, who would the good guys be and who are the bad guys? You know, I really want to be careful there because I have worked in most of with most of these guys. I've worked for a health insurance company. I've worked for a health system. I've worked, you know, in the legislature, in academia. Everybody is trying to do their best. So I don't think anyone wakes up every day saying, how can I make patients' lives miserable? (laughs) Unfortunately, there are a lot of actors more on the health insurance side or on the all these companies that are making money off of people being sick. You know, if I had to divide, those really aren't the guys we want to support. We want to support the community health workers, the nurses, the physicians. And, you know, frankly, who supports patients? Who helps people sort of stay healthy? So it's not an easy call because some of the health insurance companies are doing the right thing. Pharma is often considered a bad guy, but they just came up with a vaccine that might save us from a pandemic. So 
the science that they're leading is great. Unfortunately, their business practices where they might jack up the price by 500% is not so great. So how do we separate the good science, the good clinical work from these business practices that are profit motivated? I kind of feel like this is sort of like Breaking Bad, where (laughs) you're watching this show that's really, really interesting, but there are no good guys in there. You can empathize with all different characters, but it's too complicated. It's not black and white. It is not. And it's the system. And that's what's so interesting to me. It's not that there are bad people. There's a really bad system and the system needs to be fixed. And that is what is so compelling. And that's the big opportunity right now. Awesome. Okay. Not that the system is screwed up, but awesome that we just got that clear. Thank you. Okay. So let's talk about where you are now. In March of 2019, a year before the coronavirus turned our worlds upside down, you took over as president and CEO of the nonprofit Pacific Business Group on Health also known as PBGH. And we are doing this interview, P.S., in early December of 2020. This interview for sure is going to run sometime in 2021. What is PBGH and what does it do, Elizabeth? Sure. Great question. So PBGH is a membership organization of jumbo employers in the U.S. They include, you know, Walmart, Boeing, Disney, Comcast, So when you think of those giant employers, most of them are our members and it's because they are paying the healthcare bill in this country. They, our members alone pay over a hundred billion dollars a year for healthcare on behalf of their employees. They pay for those health insurance benefits. They pay for the hospitalizations, everything that is really done in healthcare. Now, obviously we have public programs like Medicaid and Medicare, but employers in the United States pay for over half of of the healthcare system. That is unlike any other country. So we can talk about that too. So these members join PBGH to learn how to help make healthcare better. They are committed to, to getting higher quality care and a better experience on behalf of their employees. And collectively, that's about 15 million Americans. So we help them. How do they find the best providers? How do they structure arrangements that make sure that, you know, their employees get the best care and the best experience? That's technically complicated. And they hire us to help them do that. Okay. And this could also be helpful for our young listeners, because what you painted there to me sounds more like a trade association than a nonprofit. What is it that makes it a nonprofit? Great question. And we are often confused for a trade association, but that's not what we are. We are actually creating and operationalizing programs in the market. So one example, a lot of our employer members want to have better maternity care. And they need help doing that. So I have someone on my staff who helped design a new way to pay for maternity care that made sure moms were getting mental health services, that they could have babies where they wanted to, maybe not in a hospital, and that all of the services they needed for a healthy 
birth and a healthy newborn were sort of paid for and coordinated on their behalf. So we actually designed that program. And then our members like Qualcomm decided to implement that with their health system that they partner with. And Salesforce is one of our members and they want to do this. So we actually design programs. That was just one example that our members then use and scale nationally. So it's it's really operationally focused. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So could you take us into a typical day for you, Elizabeth? <laughs> what is it that you are spending much of your time doing? I know when you and I started this interview, you said you've been on Zooms all day. You were speaking to a big group of people. I think you spoke to a couple big groups of people. What is it that you as the CEO are trying to do? Yeah, it's a great question. So I don't want to gloss over that a lot of my job is managing, particularly younger staff and helping them get better at their jobs. And that has to be a big focus of my day because I hire terrific people and we're asking them to do hard things. So they deserve my time and help and experience to make sure that they are successful. So I spend a lot of time working with my team and helping them solve things and really just learning what they can do to just be really successful. So there's a managerial part. Unfortunately, sometimes because I work in a nonprofit, there's a lot of fundraising. And it's one of the frustrations of my work that the things that would really transform healthcare and make healthcare better often aren't paid for by anybody. So there's a lot of fundraising and I work with foundations, philanthropies a lot. We also have a policy arm. So I'm working with the Biden transition team so they can understand what's happening in the market. What help do you need from policy to actually make healthcare more affordable and better? So you know, we've worked closely with Becerra, who just got nominated to be HHS secretary. And I think he's going to be a great choice because he understands the market and why healthcare is so expensive right now and what can be done about it. And then because I've been in this space for so long, I have a lot of speaking opportunities. So you're right. Just before this call, I gave a big executive briefing to a couple hundred of executives on what are employers looking for in the healthcare system because they want to shape their businesses around that. So there's management, there's program design. I actually love thinking about solutions in healthcare because there are things that we could do to make it better. And I've spent a lot of time in this space. So I help design programs. I do fundraising. I do policy work and influence and a lot of public speaking. That's that's a pretty typical day. <laughs> oh my gosh. As I said in the introduction, PBGH represents 40 of the largest public and private purchasers of healthcare service in the country. And then you help to flesh out even more of the companies that are members of your organization. What does it mean to say public and private purchasers of healthcare service services? That is a great question. And one of the things we need to get better at is our language. Half the things that we talk about just don't make sense to normal humans. And we <laughs> need to get better at that. What we're talking about are basically private companies like the ones I mentioned, you know, Boeing, American Airlines, they're all part of our membership, Microsoft, Costco. 
they join us because they are buying healthcare and they need help to do that better. Public purchasers are governments. So public purchasers are like the state of Washington is a member. CalPERS, who purchases healthcare on behalf of all state employees in California, is a member. Those are public purchasers, as are the federal government. Medicare is the biggest purchaser of healthcare services in the world. And we partner with Medicare on a lot of things. So those are the public and private purchasers we're talking about. Got it. You could just say governments and companies. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guess what? I think this is an opportunity for all those young people who are really good at translating. So it doesn't really matter what your major is. If you're somebody who's really good at just taking wonky stuff and putting it into plain speak, there could be an opportunity for you here. <laughs> I hire you if you could do that. I am serious. Healthcare communications are an area of great need. We really need to be better at explaining ourselves. And I think that's a, a really growing field. How has COVID changed your job, Elizabeth, and your organization's mission, if at all? Well, in terms of my job, I went from flying all over the country every week to basically not leaving my house. So I used to travel all the time for work. I was in D.C. at least once a month. I would go visit our members in North Carolina or Arkansas or Texas or whatever. That's that's kind of over. So I'm on Zoom a whole lot. So that's just sort of, you know, how it's affected my day to day. In terms of how it's affected the work, it's just made it so much more urgent because when companies like Disney are facing massive layoffs, the pressure to control healthcare costs just has gone through the roof. And again, that's not their day jobs. They run amusement parks and, you know, sports networks, and they have to find savings where they exist. And so suddenly the pressure on them to fix healthcare and affordability has just gone, it's just, you know, gone through the roof. So there's urgency that we didn't have before. At the same time, we work with primary care providers, they're going bankrupt because of COVID and because of how we pay for care. So there is just, there's a, a real sense of distress and crisis, but at the same time, that's opportunity because people who were dug into the status quo are open to new ideas. Yeah. Like telehealth. Exactly. There is a wonderful young woman and actually someone else that I should connect you with. She has a, an M Health startup that is going great gangbusters. And she said what COVID did for her is that a lot of the regulations that were blocking her from bringing access to healthcare to so many underserved communities evaporated exactly. because of COVID. So you're absolutely right. In crisis, often there are tremendous opportunities. Yeah. I would say that we made about 10 years worth of overdue progress in telehealth in about three weeks because we had to. And it just shows you what's possible when people think outside the box. And it, it was so overdue that we leveraged technology for remote virtual visits, but the regulations and the business practices didn't allow it. So I think that's a perfect example of how you can be ready for change 
One other thing that one piece of advice that I got early on that has proven true again and again is something, the lucky opportunity and the prepared mind. So the person you talked about was prepared with an answer. And, you know, sadly, the lucky opportunity of a pandemic positioned her to really just succeed. So I think we we will see a lot more of that over the next few years. Excellent. If you were a college student right now, Elizabeth, and you were looking at job opportunities in the healthcare space, and I know they run the gamut, could you spell that out for our listeners? How many different types of companies, nonprofits, trade associations, local, federal, state governments touch on this industry? It's almost too many to even list. I, I think that the most exciting ones are either in the clinical space because there's a huge need there for clinicians and people who do direct patient care either in the home or in the hospital, but just people who care for people. There's a, a real demand there. And the innovation space, startups who are trying to bring innovation to healthcare there is a huge need for that. And young people are often way better than those of us who've been doing the same thing for a long time. How do you just think differently about it? Amazon is this great great example where they are piloting this new platform where you can tell, you, you know, enter your medical need into an app and they have a clinician respond to you within you know, a certain amount of time. And if they can't help you within two hours, they send a doctor to you. That is just so revolutionary in healthcare. But most industries who are customer oriented, figure things out like that. So we need people who are thinking outside of the box, typically young people to come up with those ideas and help change the system. I think Amazon is going to be running all of our lives very soon, Elizabeth. It's already running so much of it, but that is a great example. Yeah. So where would you be looking for good entry-level opportunities if you were graduating in 2021? Would it be at a place like Amazon? And suppose, all right, yes, we've got frontline workers. For those interested in being on the front lines, you touched on various ways, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a social worker, a nurse, somebody providing palliative care, whatever. There are those jobs. But what about those who don't want to be clinicians? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of fantastic nonprofits out there who are doing really cool work, thinking about those systemic problems and challenges and, you know, new ways of approaching, you know, the same problems. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. I will tell you, you know, the health plans are often hiring. They've got deep pockets and some of them do some innovative things. Also, I, I just think people don't think about state governments as a young person. And they are often facing these challenges in a way that, you know, really has a systemic societal view. So if you really want to think about how can you influence people's lives on a broader scale, whether it's through policy or, you know, just creating a public health system, that's often done through state government. I, I think people don't, young people don't often think about that. And then you mentioned the communications front, which I couldn't agree with more. 
I think there are some boutique communications companies that are really focusing on healthcare right now. So it's just, there are so many ways to get at it. I think it's really a place that needs young people. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned state government. When you worked, for example, for Maine Health, Mm -hmm. which was an integrated delivery system in Maine, is that state government or was that a private system? That's a health system, private, not-for-profit health system, served most of the people in the state, but it was a hospital-based healthcare system. And that was a great experience. I learned a lot about what it means to run a system, a health system, but I didn't always agree with everything they were doing. So it was an important opportunity. One of the things that we haven't really talked about, something that I learned being a young female executive was how much trickier it can be sometimes for women to navigate executive leadership positions and and get there. And that system was pretty old school. And there were only two senior executives who were women, and I was one of them. (laughs) And to really, to really navigate those things, I think women need to find mentors, maybe outside of the systems, we need to be thinking about how do we really help young professionals and and including women really plot out a career in a meaningful way, because that I never, no one ever really guided me there. And I really wish that that had been available. So I really think a lot about how I can help young people, you know, make career decisions. I, I think that that's just a really, really good investment and use of time. Love that point. So important, Elizabeth. What advice can you offer our young listeners, men and women, how they can approach a mentor, find a mentor and nurture that relationship. You know, see who you admire. Just look around who is someone that you admire, sort of the quality of work they do, how they approach the work, how they work with their teammates. And honestly, just ask them. I have been asked by people from time to time, and I am always so surprised. It never occurred to me that they would value that help until they ask. People at the very least will be flattered. And so I really think it's, it's okay to ask for help. And, and often it ends up being a really a win-win because it's also good for those of us who are further along in our careers to learn new ways of thinking about it and understand the questions that people are facing. So don't be shy about asking. Yes. And you can also set up a kind of a, gosh, I was going to say system, but a schedule to say, could we talk, you know, for 30 minutes every other month or or once a month or or ask your prospective mentor what would work for them. And then it's up to you to follow up. And you want to let your mentor know that you have executed on some of their advice. You want to show them that you are listening. That will feed the relationship, my friends. Okay, Elizabeth, let's flash back very quickly to when you were in college. As you mentioned, you majored in religion, also the philosophy of religion. You went to Reed College in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Not at all. (laughs) And luckily, I had parents who said, you know what, as an undergrad, 
just learn all you can get educated, become, you know, a good writer, a good critical thinker, just get those skills. And so I didn't feel pressure to really specialize at that point. And so I really hadn't thought about it. I assumed I would go to graduate school. Frankly, I thought I might be a Knowles instructor for a while, you know, do something totally different outdoors. But I got a job as an editor of a health policy newsletter. And I didn't know anything about the content, but I had become a pretty good writer. I had, you know, as part of my undergraduate education. And so even though I didn't know the content, you know, to our earlier point, you know, it was pretty poorly explained what they were trying to write about. So I, I could, I could apply those skills. And over time I got to learn about the content and actually became sort of a health policy analyst and really publishing papers on what I was learning about the system. And that just led to other opportunities. But it was it was not a plan. It was, again, a lucky accident in a prepared mind. You gave a wonderful commencement address at a high school in recent years in which you really hit the nail on the head. And frankly, it totally aligned with what I've seen from the hundreds of interviews I've done now with professionals like you in dozens of different industries about the way careers unfold. And that is, first, there is no map that comes with your degree, my friends, no matter what you studied to show you, unless, of course, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, but even then, doesn't tell you what kind of doctor, what kind of lawyer. You were a religion major in your case, Elizabeth. And right? No plan that says, okay, religion majors, you should do X, Y, or Z. And you said, I believe, thank goodness we have free choice. The second thing that you spoke about in your commencement address, which completely resonated with me and aligns with what I've seen, is that shit happens in our lives. Curveballs come our way. You didn't say shit happens. I'm saying it. Curveballs come our way. We've only to look at what happened in 2020. COVID-19 struck out of nowhere. In this case, it was a curveball that hit everyone around the world. And you, Elizabeth, had your own curveballs in the way of a bouncing baby girl when you were, what, 22 or 23. How did having your daughter and juggling childcare and work and bills influence your next career move from the one that you just mentioned? Yeah. So I was a young, broke, single mom. And I was pissed off because I couldn't afford health care. I couldn't afford child care. I was working two jobs. None of it made sense. And I just thought this cannot be right. Like this system is just not fair. And so I ran for the legislature because I was like, I have to figure out something to do about it. And the opening came up and I jumped in and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. It never occurred to me that I would actually even get elected, but I did. And I got there and I realized that I was the only one with the perspective that I had. And they happened to be doing welfare reform that year and they were demonizing single mothers. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Do you want to understand the realities of trying to raise a kid when all of these things are so expensive? And the health insurance lobbyists would come to me and want this or that. And I said, well, what are you doing about affordability? 
And they said, we hadn't really even thought about affordability. So speaking your truth and representing your experience in these forums is important. And we actually passed national landmark legislation that helped families get education and get back to work and have affordable health insurance. And I don't know that that would have happened if I didn't have the experience and perspective that I had. So own that, know that your experience and perspective is is valued and work your tail off. No one's going to come to you with an opportunity wrapped up in a bow. That is not real life. Go out there, find something you care about and work hard. It will be recognized and rewarded. You'll learn a lot and you will be successful at anything that you are really passionate about. Amen. Two final questions for you, Elizabeth. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled, okay, yes, when you were in your early 20s, single mom, working your butt off, hardly being able to pay your bills, maybe you even failed. I was fired twice in my 40s. They turned out to be unbelievably incredible gifts. And the most important thing here is how you persevered. You talked about working your butt off and a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I have done so many face plants. Ah, and I will tell you, I can still remember vividly, like sometime doing you know, public speaking and just bombing and you know you're bombing and you can't get off the stage. <laughs> it's painful and you just want it to end. So, oh my gosh, there are so many times where things have not gone according to plan. Frankly, very recently, I moved to California to work for a health insurance company, and I made a big commitment to move across the com- country, and I left a job I liked to do it. And you know what? It was not a fit. It was not the right thing for me. And I, I, a year in, I was like, yikes, what have I done? And that's how I ended up in the job I'm in now. The timing was amazing. They knew that because I had had experience at a health insurance company, that would be valuable in my next role. It happened to be based in California. So everything works out if you make the most of it. I still have great relationships from that health insurance company. I learned things that I didn't know before. And I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I had the experience. It was not as I had planned, (laughs) but keep focused on the positives. Focus on what you've learned, what you can learn, what you can bring to your next role. Because I have found that everybody has those belly flops. It's <laughs> you about them that really defines your career. And just keep going. Oh my God. We are singing from the same songbook, my friend. Final question. If you could go back to read and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, Elizabeth, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I would not change anything about my undergraduate studies because it was fascinating and I learned a lot. I would have been more relaxed about it. I would have enjoyed it more and put less pressure on myself to know what was going to come next. I actually have a daughter who's a junior in college, and she is the most talented, driven, capable person I know. And she's worried about 
making the right choice right now? And what are the long-term consequences of making the wrong step? And take that pressure off yourself. Really make the most of exactly where you are. Enjoy it because, you know, it's a privilege. And trust that you will be able to navigate what comes next. Trust that you will have the judgment and the work ethic and the problem solving skills to get through whatever it is. You don't have to know right now. Nobody does. And if they tell you they do, they're making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And please have your daughter come to the Time for Coffee website. And if she would like to reach out to me. That is exactly, she is exactly, and all of our young listeners are the reason I created this platform to help you take a deep breath and realize that it doesn't just hit you one day when you wake up at age 21, what you want to do for the rest of your life. It is a process. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community, the work you're doing is so incredibly important. I wish you all the luck and the energy and good vibes as you continue this incredibly complicated work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And I just have so much faith in the young people that are going to just make things better for all of us. So thank you for this opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.